Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Guy, Nick Mason's source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Uh, right, so Dominion Voting Systems are suing Giuliani for $1.2 billion. Are they? Are yeah. they really? What, 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 is, what, is their, what are they saying? Well, he's made shit up. <laughs> Simple as that. Uh, no, uh, but they're, they're not complaining about his hair dye. Yeah, obviously, he represents them really badly. That's oh, what no, that's one point two billion dollars of anyone's money. Um, I am. Um, uh, listen, thank you for this week, uh, people who listen to this, because you know we're back at number one on the podcast thing and uh, whatever it is charts I mean getting getting num getting your podcast chart in is a bit like the old Tuesdays when in the 80s where we exactly. used to get the chart positions or even when it's sort of I remember you know 1972 you know waiting to see where T-Rex went in in the top 30 and now I just look at the podcast charts yeah the terrible thing is you check every day though don't you let's be honest <laughs> yeah there's no one there's no one listening to <laughs> Um, we're gonna. We've got. We've got Roland Orzabal in today, and I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I think this guy is. I mean, in a way, I have to be absolutely honest. I sort of dismissed Tears for Fears in the eighties. Why? Because I was threatened by how good they were. Um, oh, you know, OK, you. they weren't the gang mentality. They weren't the team, you know, the Durands or the, you know, they th these were artists, these two guys. And we all knew, you know, Roland was very much at the heart of that. Yeah. But I, well, I love them because but like they always for me fed into that whole Peter Gabriel thing that I was that I was into. And I played on one of their records. Yeah. So Clever, uh, oh, the again. Yes. So, you know, it's played on everyone's record. Well, you know, I try. Um, no, so let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, that's Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much, Ronan. Would that be... It's not the studio you used to have when I came. And when you played. came, uh, what, you? what it is, um, that, was, that was called Neptune's Kitchen... That was the big SSL studio, the SSL I bought off Paul McCartney. And I did four albums in there. <laughs> Just throw that in yes, there. Yes, you know, name drop. That's the first one. Okay. I bet, I tell you what, if it was from Paul, I bet it wasn't cheap. It was not cheap, no. It was uh, £100,000. <laughs> it was, that's the SSL studio. And what happened was when I, we moved to LA for a couple of years in 2003 to finish the Everybody Loves a Happy Ending album. And we locked up the house. In fact, we rented out the house, but we locked up the studio. And after two years of the electronic equipment being switched off, I came back and it was all absolutely no good, useless, destroyed. Wow. Oh. And so... Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, pretty bad. Uh, so at real end of an era, I did four albums in there. 
lovely big room, I remember. It was lovely. Yeah, room. lovely big room. Because yeah, I, 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 I came, came there once, didn't I, Roland? Yeah, I we, came we played in. table tennis. We did. We did. And I couldn't think, we couldn't think of anything to write or do musically. So we played can, table can tennis. Can you remember who won, though? <laughs> Obviously, you. You're good yes. at you're good at table tennis, aren't you? That's your that was your thing. I too. It was my that. thing. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, Roland, the the one song I did play on of yours was that since when lockdown started, I started doing this YouTube series mm-hmm. called Lockdown Licks as yep. my contribution, where I I just take people through sort of my greatest you know songs that I've played on, and one of the ones that gets inordinately um, requested is Mr. Pessimist. And I have to keep telling people that I know what they're thinking is that really cool, sexy main bass line, which isn't mm-hmm. me. It's a no, synth. I'm just a the sample. middle bit, yeah. right? You are just yeah. the middle bit. So, but, you know. I'm just the wh- middle wh- bit. What a middle so bit. So often the way. It's incredible. When Break It Down Again came out, it's like, that's the one I wanted to be on. That's because, yeah. I mean, that is a bil- billion dollar pocket on that song. Which is yeah, again, I think, that's, uh, I think that's programmed. And that's programmed, yeah. isn't it? I, I know, I but the so. feel on that is. In a way, as you know, the artist that you are, one of the things that you thrived on was having a lot of different musicians in the room. I mean, you you break down some of your tracks. I mean, you've got two drummers on uh, Women and Chains, haven't you? And it's uh, and two of the greatest jump drummers in the world play on that. Uh, yeah, that's just it's, Phil on Women and Chains, Phil Collins. But doesn't Manu Kache start that? No, no, he he's playing on Badman's song. He plays on a lot of uh, Seeds of Love album. There's one track called um, Year of the Knife where there are actually two drummers, yeah. We had a lot of people in, yeah. I mean, in the early days we didn't, but uh, when, when we got to, I think we were so tired, frustrated and bored of touring with um, a Revox doing the backing track during the Big Chair tour, eight months of the same set, the mm-hmm. same songs, that we, we decided we were going to do something radically different and that's when we, when we did Seize the Love. We got a whole, so many people in. Because if I was teaching a course mm-hmm. on 80s music, yep. the Tears for Fears journey perfectly describes that sort of sonic arc of the 80s. Like, you started off with Lindrums yep. and all that quite uptight programming, which at the time was the freshest, most exciting thing in the world. And then you move on to Songs of the Big Chair, things get more symphonic and laid yep. out and relaxed. Right. And, this, and, then, and then the posh players turn up. Yeah. <laughs> and you go for yeah. this big, more authentic sound, which is, which really was the journey of the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Sonic, sonically. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it started off with minimalism, didn't it? Which is not that easy to say. Uh, yeah, we really were, you know, very sort of self-conscious, you know, all the synthesizers, all very precise. But, yeah, it just went... Something happened, I think, in the the mid to late 80s something changed politically um i mm. kind of had this sort of weird feeling that i should start growing my hair and i'm not quite sure why but then we had we sort of all bled into the summer of love and it, everything started getting a bit more hippie right. with stone roses and yeah. and the yeah. manchester scene and i think i was living in london at the time and i think i just was picking up on that a lot more Plus, we were the other thing is we sort of climbed the heights of the mid '80s, you know, by getting to number one in America a couple of times, and it was we just I came back from that tour and I I I, I just didn't couldn't listen to the radio one anymore, and it was Stock Aiken and Waterman, so I, I I went back to the '70s really. That's you know went back to '60s and '70s, the Beatles, Steely Dan. Little feet. Now, let's if we're going to talk about the, the beginnings, though, it isn't really yeah. electronic, yes. really, is it? it it's no. mod scar beat. Which, mod, mod scar, yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, and the the big question, the big question for you, Roland, yeah. is why should Elvis play scar? Ooh. Um. <laughs> Elvis should well, play scar was one of your early a... singles, wasn't it, with the graduate? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think yeah. What next to what is the meaning of life? That is. Probably, probably one of the biggest questions. It's, it's Elvis Costello you're posing the question to, right? Yeah, I mean, I've got to be, be honest with you. When I was in a graduate, the sort of mod power pop band, I wouldn't say I, that was my best work. And I, I've been writing songs since I was, a, you know, since I was nine years old. And uh, we weren't the best proponents of that style of music. I was absolutely a huge fan of, of two-tone i mean who wasn't 
mm. um, specials yeah, and, and madness. And it just really, really blew my mind. But we and the jam are on a on a different uh, kind of level. But yeah, we were just I don't know, we're starting off really uh, and uh, yeah. found our feet. You did look very sharp. You had the look, the we, look like down T. Those are those are good suits, <laughs> man. <laughs> that's how that's they how you were. started, Guy, wasn't it? You started in a mod. It's band. exactly how I, I started in a mod. Didn't band. you start yeah, like so that, Gary, you know. as well? Well, we had a uh, yeah, Spandau Valley were kind of a power pop band, I suppose, and we, yeah. we we were yeah. I mean, we did we were doing really fast pop tunes. Yeah, we yeah. were into that whole Tamla thing as well. Really, not so much yeah. Scar, I have to say, not so much Scar, but m- more sort of New Hearts was mm-hmm. our kind of uh, and Generation X were our template, really. Oh right, okay, yeah. Interesting. So, how how were you and Curtis when you when you Kurt, sorry when you when you first got together then? Uh, oh, I mean, fourteen. Was it school? No, was I it? mean he didn't yeah. go. There were two big comprehensives in Bath, uh, Beach and Cliff and Culverhay. I went to Culverhay. You went to Beach and Cliff. Um, had a, a mutual friend who went to junior school with Kurt, and he was my friend at Culverhay. And I was living outside Bath at the time in a place called Cainsham, which is nearer Bristol but I was still going to school in Bath so I would stay there for the weekend occasionally and my friend Paul um, said look I'm going to go and um, we're going to go and meet a friend of mine another friend of mine called Kurt so um, we went across to a place called Snow Hill which is the big council estate in central Bath not and it's Uh, not posh because it would be called Snozzle (laughs) (laughs) no it's not posh I mean you know I suppose in terms of council estates up and down the country, it's probably a little better, but but not by much. Bath is one of those towns where you assume everything is quite sort of posh. Don't you? Yeah, well, it, 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 it's a kind of, it's, yeah, no. it's a touristy town and it's a beautiful mm. architecture and it used to be, a, well, it is a spa still. So a lot of people used to come here in the sort of Georgian times and the Victorian times uh, to partake of the waters. Um, but it's it's yeah it's, it's a kind of it's a little bit of a vain place that's what I would say. Um, anyway, well, Beau Brummel. Beau Brummel, yes. So yeah, so we went to Snow Hill Flats. We knocked. We walked up a couple of flights. We knocked on the door, and I saw Kurt for the first time in my life. And he wasn't allowed out because he'd been in a fight and he'd knocked someone down the stairs. So it was like that was my f- initial meeting. I thought, well, this is obviously a guy I need to steer clear of. I was like. Um, <laughs> You know, I was very conscientious, good at school, a student, and here was, um, you know, a Wuffian. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's that's how we met. And it wasn't until, I think it was about, he moved somewhere, and he was, it must have been months later, six months later, or something like that, and uh, we were in his bedroom as teenagers, and he was singing along to uh, a song called Last Days of May, Blue Oyster Cult. And yeah, because oh. yeah, well, we were really into uh, heavy rock, actually. That was our, our first thing, way, be- way before we of were yeah, jumping I mean- up and down wearing mod suits. Yeah, and so I heard him singing along to it, and it's like, whoa, that's weird, he's got something. Because I, I didn't really consider myself a, a singer at the time. I was a very, very bad lead guitarist in a, in a kind of rock trio. And um, so we, we, we asked Kurt to, to become lead singer so we could do more, you know, become more like a, a Led Zeppelin thing. Was he playing bass no, then? No, he wasn't or? playing bass. He, he, I, I taught him the bass um, when he was about 17, 18. There's nothing to no, it. No, exactly. It's like two notes, isn't it? <laughs> and how was your relationship yeah. at that point then, writing songs? Did you start to write songs together? No, we never. We didn't write songs. I always wrote songs. And um, Kurt, when we did graduate, I, I would like write, write the nine songs. Kurt would write one. And, you know, when we did, we started off Tears with uh, The Hurting, I wrote all the songs. Not that he wasn't influential, he was extremely influential, but it wasn't really until we got into Big Chair, he started to do some lyrics, and then we got into Seeds of Love, and he came up with the chorus of Sowing the Seeds of Love, which is pretty magnificent. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's taken him a while, yeah. and lately, I've just been, I was in L.A. last end of last year, and we, we spent three months finishing off the new Tears for Fears album, and he's written, he's written some killer stuff, absolutely killer. You said you started writing oh, was... songs when you were nine. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, what is the story? Did how did you were you a musician? Was it guitar? Was that your first thing? Did who bought you the guitar? I'm not going to bed. Is it? Was it? That's <laughs> no, no. Well, I I was. Uh, how long the... till with? Are we nearly there? 
I was um, going back to a council estate this time in Lee Park in Havant, Hampshire, just outside Portsmouth. And my parents uh, ran an entertainment agency from the council house. That's right. right. So we had um, all the ladies. My mum used to train strippers. And so the the ladies would take their clothes off and all the guys that came round would sing like Elvis or Johnny Cash uh, and or The Bachelors and you can remember them yeah of course oh so, yeah, yes, so yeah I, of course I, I, was it magicians and it was stuff magicians, as well was it there before? was a, a magician there was a, like a your parties must have been great your kids parties must have well, been great yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right it was a ventriloquist and uh, it would, you would, it, could you imagine that now with a zoom class going on you no. know your mum <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, this guy taught me to escape from a sack as well. That was another talent I had. Wow, um, escapologist. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's really, it was all very, very strange. But to be honest with you, it was a, there, was a, there, were, there were two things going on. There was this kind of like crazy circus theatrical side, which I absolutely loved. And then when everyone went, there was a kind of like the domestic abuse going on between my dad and my mum. So it was all very, very contradictory, if you see what I'm saying. So it was a very, yeah, yeah, very yeah, strange that's... place to, uh, to go, a strange environment to grow up in. But I think that's, I just used to love the guys singing songs. That for me, I mean, one of my earliest memories was positive memories of my father was him with an old tape machine making promotional tapes of this guy called Johnny Elk, who, who sang a bit like Elvis. And he would, he would, he would do it once. And my dad say, OK, well, let's do it again. And it was like, oh, like early production. And, uh, oh, and and when my father finally burst out in tears, that's the what that would be the take. So wow. I kind of I kind of learned that from there. So I got a fir- my first guitar, age nine, yeah. And uh, my mum worked in a when they split up. My mum worked in a retailer's toy retailer's, and she got me this little Chinese thing, um, small, very small guitar, and she bought me Burt Whedon playing a day. Oh my God, that's how I started, bro. There you go. My, my uh, mum and dad bought me a guitar uh, when I was 11. Everyone's, and everyone started like that, except me. I'm the only person who didn't. Uh, Burt Whedon's Plan a Day. I learned one of the songs from Burt Whedon's Plan a Day. I can't remember exactly what song it was. And then I thought to myself, well, I like the chords, but I hate the melody. I know, I'll invent my own melody. Wow. And that was my first How song. old were you? 11. How old were you? 11. Oh, yeah, okay. Pretty good. Yeah. So the same year I was actually... Uh, you, by then, you were mature making your first no. solo album. Probably. No, 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 I was nine, you were 11. Wasn't <laughs> by the time I was 11, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah same year, probably. Yeah, probably, yeah. That's good, yeah. yeah but we didn't play in a day, so yeah, it took me a couple of days. So, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting for my money back. But, uh, Do you know, apparently, yeah. but we never rated Hendrix. Well. He said about all the people learning, he said, yeah, I never thought much of that Hendrix. <laughs> you know, I mean, what can you say? Your relationship with your dad and the difficulties you had yeah. at home with him really were what inspired the early Tears for Fears records, weren't they? In fact, even the title of the band, isn't it, to do with the with something to do with the therapy you were you were doing? I wasn't doing the therapy. There was a the therapy was called Primal Therapy. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, psychologist yes. was a Californian psychologist was Arthur Yanov. Now, Yanis, Yanov. Yanov. Now he was kind of he became well known for someone sent uh, posted a, a book the primal scream through john lennon's letterbox and john lennon read this and he thought oh my god this is this is the secret to life this is what life's all about so he then spent uh, i think after he hooked up with arthur yanov yanov gave him therapy for six months and that led to songs like mother Oh yeah, of course, because that's why he screams at the end of months, right. isn't he? Exactly. Um, yeah. So, this uh, my I had a guitar teacher um, who was a music student in in Bath. Uh, she was about five years older than me, and six years older than me, and she taught me how to finger pick and all this kind of stuff uh, for free. And but one day she said, oh, "I'm going to go to Los Angeles to do a thing called Primal Therapy," and I think, "What?" And then she explained it all. She gave me the book Primal Scream. So I'm guessing I must have been about 17. And for me, again, I had the same kind of um, eureka moment. I just thought, oh, my God, this is exactly what it is. This is why I don't feel well. This is why I don't feel right. This is why I've been so depressed. You know, or essentially blaming 
yeah, blaming, I guess. You're, you're in a world for, you know, traumas that happened in the childhood, you know, which is true to a degree. And the answer mm. lay in a, a kind of cathartic um, therapy where you would literally shout, shout, let it all out. Um, it was a little bit of a cult, I think. And yes. yeah, so I can say that now. Kurt and I were, Kurt was the only other guy who agreed with me. You know, so I would go around trying to convince the world that this was the way um, to end all suffering. Um, everyone thought I was crazy, uh, except Kurt. So we kind of, because we both want, I think we both wanted revenge for our childhoods. Uh, so we started Tears for Fears. So Tears for Fears, um, Tears um, as a replacement for Fears comes from one of Yanov's books. So does a lot of the Primal Scream, sorry, the Hurting Songs. You know, yes. I would nick I would nick chapter titles like Ideas as Opiates and turn it into a song. So yeah, we formed Tears for Fears to get rich, get famous, and get therapy. Was was that was the hurting a sort of one way conversation yeah. that you wanted to have with your dad? Yeah, well, our parents, I think, you know, mum um, and dad. I think it was kind of like a. I think that's really the first time that I I I kind of found my voice after trying to write writing songs for so many years and trying to be in that, that power pop quintet when I started to express Sorry. myself emotionally then all of a sudden my songs were on a different level and it was almost like the message was the thing that was introducing the quality I say because it's always been very avert in your songs isn't it the whole sort of therapy angle yeah. all, all the which is very brave, I, w I would say. Yeah, it was... It was. You obviously find very natural. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, it seemed a bit odd at the time, I think, because we were so young and we looked um, to all intents and purposes. Yeah, you're meant to go on that journey with, of pop stardom and it, money and, and, then and, do and therapy, drug addiction and everything and then do the exactly. therapy. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've done a bit of that as well. But uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, um, but no, I felt I mean, what you were trying to do on The Hurting, musically, was so... Unlike the very simple, the simplicity of, of what was going on at the time in the 80s, or even if you like the uh, the, the look towards soul music and blue eyed soul and funk, mm -hmm. what you were doing was, dare I say, closer to prog rock in many ways, in, in, yeah. in, in the way that the mu you weren't scared. Uh, you've never been scared in all your career, but even but even in those early days, of of shifting gears and having different parts happen in your music, of key mm -hmm. changes and different voices coming in, in a way yeah. very akin to the sort of therapy that you're talking about. Well, I also wonder if it was anything to do with your geographical closeness to Peter Gabriel. Uh, without question, because Be yeah, because I've def always heard an influence of that. Oh yeah, I mean, I was very you know, when, when him at that point, this is the thing. I mean, Kurt was uh, very influential. Um, regarding sort of what we would listen to he was uh, far more progressive than I was and he would turn up with well one of the one of the albums this is before we started making uh, music as Tears for Fears one of the albums was Gabriel 3 now I kind of yeah, that's the one that was the one that was an absolute yard I know it was incredible yeah. and for me I, I yeah. knew I mean I was a big sort of Genesis fan but not I didn't know everything I knew he was a bit strange and wore funny headgear um but all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God, this is incredible. And he, the use of synthesizers, Larry Fast is the keyboard player, and obviously Gabriel does it himself. Yeah. But the use of synthesizers in Gabriel 3 is, is remarkable. And, and Paul Weller's on it. I remember that was the thing at the time. Yeah. Go, it's all right. Paul Weller's Paul, Paul on Weller. it. I mean, that's how, incredible. How did that work? What did Paul it, play on? He, um, he plays on, it's great, he plays on wire. and through the wire. Yeah. And he did it to piss off the record company who were saying this record isn't commercial enough. And the jam were recording in the, stu right. in the townhouse. The got and he yeah. just stormed out the room. Yeah, and he just said, Paul, come in here a minute. And he got Paul to come in and put down a guitar. Oh, go straight to that and have a listen. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah, it's and it's, it's just a great Paul Weller guitar. Genesis springs to, I mean, in a way, you yeah. know, it, what you were doing musically mm -hmm. is closer to that Peter Gabriel, if anything. I think I think one. it's quite. If you look the way at the way we progressed, it's quite simple. That you know, when 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 we got to the seas of love, we were clearly showing our real influences. So that was all tucked mm -hmm. away and hidden as we became these two sort of very fragile, introspective, wearing black individuals. You know, um, but it, it was always there, bubbling underneath the surface. So we weren't afraid of getting 
you know, very muso, very technical. Yeah, and I get this impression really, in I, I suppose in the way that Steely Dan were never a band. They were two exactly. guys, and you're two guys. That gives you the freedom then to use lots of other musicians and it's still all under well, your was umbrella. Ian, wasn't it? Because I, I, I yeah. you know, I was always writing for the same five guys. That's right. And, and it was the same band. And mm -hmm. there was always that sense of, am I still going to be able to pay my mortgage at the end of this? You know, yeah. but there was, I think there's a lot more freedom with what you were doing because they, they, but you didn't have a drummer. You didn't have an official drummer, an official oh. bass player, a well, keyboard Manny, player, as it were. Well, Manny came, yeah. It was Manny and Ian. Manny and there? Ian were, yeah, were our sort of permanent... Uh, members and then but because um, you were the only two at the front yeah you know we were it, only two signed to the record company yeah we yeah. were actually the only two right. on the record sleeves but that gave was, you more freedom yeah. do you think i do, I do um definitely because i mean look at the songs of the big chair i mean you know we, we've suddenly got we've got jazz going on in there as well you we know, do you, indeed you, yes you, and, and you know that i don't think there's a virtually not a song under six minutes long on that album no, well, it's good uh, I mean, for the record company, with the record company going, guys, guys, this is just a little bit too left field. They weren't. No, I mean, they sort of our A and R uh, guy was a guy called uh, Dave Bates, and uh, he was. Oh yes, yes, yeah. Yes, he yes. was extremely patient and a little bit nervous when we were doing the hurting. But um, his our uh, producer, a guy called Chris Hughes, who was Merrick in Adam and the yeah, Ants. I know, that was uh, amazing. I always found that amazing. Yeah. That the drummer yeah, from Adam the Ants produced those records. Well, yeah, but he's, he's a clever, yeah. very, very clever guy. Um, so he, he, Chris Hughes and Dave Bates were very, very good friends. So whenever Dave wanted something done, he would just call Chris and Chris would know exactly what needed to be done regarding the pleasing the record company. But what happened with Big Chair is we were all of a sudden introducing more guitars um, the whole sound was becoming... I was scared, to be honest with you. I was scared and I wasn't sure about it. I mean, I remember when I wrote Shout, it was, again, very delicate. Um, it, uh, just a rhythm and a drone, that's all it was. And I, 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 we, we left the studio, Kurt and I, to, to go do a video up on Salisbury Hill, by the way. And um, Of course. Of course, yeah, <laughs> as you do. And we we got back from the video, and uh, Chris and Ian had this drumulator with the Led Zepp sounds on the go, and this really heavy version of Shout. And I was like, "What the hell?" It sounded incredible. And but it it was just that we then needed a verse. We needed to finish the whole thing. But um, I think um, there was a move, and and uh, Ian was quite sort of. Um, unabashed when he sort of said you know you guys need to be bigger you need to be bigger than you are and we're like going what we're very happy the way we are um, and we we crossed the pond with that sound you know yeah. made, putting more yeah. guitars on it uh, but very, I think that was lucky. that was the, everybody wants to rule the world that's that's got to be such a, 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 a it works perfectly for the era that it came out of that eight the 80s enthusiasm exactly. to rule the world I've got to say, yeah, and two of the most definitive and and original guitar solos on one song. Thank you. They're both fantastic. Yeah, well, I didn't do the uh, the tricky one at the end. That's that's guy. That's Neil guy Taylor, called isn't Neil it? Taylor, who's think, uh, yeah. pretty pretty yeah. phenomenal. But 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 uh, <laughs> that would have been around. Is that that's the same year as Live Aid? Because you didn't appear at Live Aid, did you? There's a there's a story there, Roland, isn't there? Yeah. If yeah. I see if I can embellish it or lie. Um, we were mixing Big Chair. Yeah. And we weren't very, you know, we, we'd had some success in England. We weren't, uh, you know, we weren't Duran or Spandau, but we, we were having a little bit of success. Um, and we were mixing in, I don't ask me, oh, I don't know why we were mixing in Munich. I got a phone call from my manager and he said, oh, Bob Geldof's been on the phone and he wants to know if you're interested in going along and singing some kind of charity record. And I'm, not really, no. So it was <laughs> no, no, no real explanation, but uh, you know. So uh, no, we, we didn't do that. We stayed in Munich and we went skiing. Not that I skied, but uh, we went skiing. And when when Geldof first asked me if he thought anyone would be interested, yeah. I said, "Yeah, everyone would be thinking no." Of yeah. course, you're the only one who actually lived up to that. Yeah, no, I was. I mean, I, I, you know, I was actually, a, you know, like a lot of people, a huge Boomtown Rats fan, and I bumped into to Bob quite a few times in, in the record company. 
But no, I didn't. I didn't. Well, I guess it wasn't really explained to me what was going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So we just turned it down. And then um, we were on tour uh, in '85, huge um, eight-month-long tour. And again, the Live Aid thing came along. We were in. We were on the west coast of America. So the best thing we could have done was, would be to fly to um, Philadelphia. JFK. But we were. We had a choice between doing that and going on holiday in Hawaii. So on the way to Japan so again it was a bit of a no-brainer because here's the real reason we weren't very good live and that might sound crazy because I know a lot of people came to see us in 1985 and probably really enjoyed it um, we're very good live now well, they're, not, they're not getting their money back they're not back, getting right? their money back we're very good live now but in 1985 we, we, you know before in-ear you know monitoring and uh, all that kind of stuff we struggled we struggled a lot with the pitching with the timing, with Sonics. I used to go out the front every gig, every show, every sound check to try and get it to sound okay. Um, so if we had done Live Aid, we would have, well, for a start, we would have gone on very early and it would have been just awful. I mean, I know, for a good cause, obviously, but there were, there were bands and artists who just were incredible. They were made for it. People who did played stadiums, people who knew what they were doing, they went on there and they bossed it. You know, it's incredible. But we couldn't have done that. We, it would have been an embarrassment. Yeah, that's, that's very honest. Is the story that you were replaced by George Thorogood and the Destroyers not actually true then? Had that decision been made over? Uh, yeah, I think it was George Thorogood and the guys that you just mentioned. So I remember, I remember seeing them and thinking, oh, that's nice. <laughs> Unexpected. Tears for fears phoned up and said, we can't, we're not going to do this. We just can't do this. And they had to go to a bar and find someone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there, George Thorogood was halfway through a good meal. Yeah. <laughs> you get rave reviews for your show now, Life. That's like, I remember you did your last That Arena tour yeah. a couple of years back now, wasn't it? And I really, yeah. really wanted to go to. Yeah, and the reviews were fantastic. Yeah, they were. And uh, it's just... I think what happened was um, after Happy Ending, we just spent, you know, every summer touring around the States just for a laugh, really. I mean, it wasn't anything big. It was mainly vineyards and casinos and, uh, you know, just good fun. Uh, But over the years, we we changed a few band members and we, we just got really good. And then we started playing a few festivals. And we changed our set to make, make it more dancey. And we, we included like cover version and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden the word was going around, you know, tears for fears, tears for fears. So we went, 2017, we were asked to um, open for Hall & Oates on this big uh, arena tour throughout the, throughout the States. And uh, so we only play in an hour, um, but we're playing, you know, for months and months and months. Then we were asked to, we were booked to do Albert Hall uh, in 2017. We're also asked to do Radio 2 live broadcast, which is on the red, red button on the TV. And of course, we just, we, we were so used to it. We were well-oiled machine, as they say. And I think when people saw it on TV, all those years of like absence from England, because all the bands American, Kurt lives in America. Um, I think it was a bit of a shock. And that, but that, it was fantastic to go away and come back actually as a good live band. No, I can vouch for yeah. it because you, I, you toured, we toured with you in Australia, New Zealand in... Uh, yes, we did, yes. 2010, was that maybe Happy 2010? Happy days. I don't, I don't remember, uh, yeah. It was good fun. Out of interest, out of interest, Ronan, what, um, what covers do you do? Because it's a thing that bands always used to do. People forget, if you went to see Led Zeppelin or The Who yeah. or anyone... Half, you know, half the set would be covers. It was, you know, no one was precious. Everyone did it. Johnny Be Good, right? And it's just gone. Yeah, we don't do Johnny Be Good. We do, we did uh, Please Creep, don't. Radiohead's Creep. <laughs> oh, there you um, go. Great. Which is great because I'm really, I can really attack that and I get very, very loud during the long note. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is 
This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. But when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was on my own, um, Tears for Fears, when we went down to Brazil, uh, we were playing like four nights in a club down there in Sao Paulo, and every night we would do a different cover version. I did uh, uh, one night I did Digging in the Dirt, Peter Gabriel, which was great fun. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, love yeah, that yeah. track. Bit of a lost album, that one. The, I uh, yeah, I agree. The Seeds of Love album is kind of famous for being one of the most expensive records ever made. Is that, That's right. Um, and uh, I don't know, you must have a certain pride in that. That's that, that is that stage in one's career. <laughs> when And also thinking about that period in production, you know, Trevor oh. Horn was spending months oh, yeah. just doing a hi-hat. Yes. And and I think and you love the studio and you did mm-hmm. have that um, ability to be able to pull different musicians in and I guess mm-hmm. it you know you could say right let's let's get Phil on this one mm, let's try another version with some other drummer on it yeah. and and then edit it all together at the end yes I mean you must have been terrified as well but the, at, at that point that you'd gone a little too far in 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 the preparation for this record we we went way too far um, that's my my biggest regret of seeds of love is there's far too much on it uh, it was we kitchen synced so much i mean you've got like okay the the lead single so in the seeds of love i'm very very happy with that woman in chains i'm very very happy with that bad man song yeah rightly so thank rightly you so. bad man song we're very happy with that but a lot of the other stuff is just it's overkill it's really overkill and um yeah but we we did we it was a million pounds is what it cost which at the time was the most expensive record those ever made um and we did a lot of it in my house so imagine if you right. if you carried on well hey session <laughs> musicians weren't wow. cheap in those days either were they and I no guess, this, uh, it's actually studio time remember we were not no it was a different it was very different i'd say remember you. it was thousand pounds a, a day poor old days. guy <laughs> yeah i remember those yeah, yeah thousand three, pounds a day that, that, for, for three days for three hours years. sometimes you know what was great on that record was uh was a letter adams right and we, yeah who, amazing. who, who, who you Tell tell us a story because you you didn't you and Kurt yeah. discover her in a bar in Kansas or somewhere I don't Kansas where, City. And it was the hotel, wasn't it? it? Was hotel. Your hotel. No. Um, During the big chair chair tour. It was a big chair tour, so I don't know if this was the first or second leg. Probably the first leg, I think. But we were very very, you know, as I said, very frustrated and very bored. We're playing the same set in the same running order every night, and we were number one. Our album was number one in America. Okay, why aren't you feeling incredible? You know, because you're human um, and it's, you know, your day to day stuff is the most important what you're confronted with. Anyway, we played Kansas. It was OK. The show was OK. It was nothing to, you know, write home about. But we went back to the hotel. It was a Sunday night and we had to pay a dollar fifty to get into the Peppermint Duck Alameda Plaza Lounge or something. The Peppermint Duck Lounge in the Alameda <laughs> Plaza. That's it. And there was a woman on stage um, with a drummer and a bass player. And there was a, uh, her, her audience, a very Sunday night, very respectful, almost church-like gospel audience. And well, I just sat at the bar, ordered a Poulini Montrachet, as you do. And oh, yes. we, all, we all listened to it. And I just, I just was in floods of tears because it was like 
I guess, you know, I'm a long way away from home. I'm tired. I don't like what I'm doing. This woman is way better than we are. And she's playing in a bar. Yeah, yeah. And it was all that kind of like existentialist self-loathing and but at the same time moved by what I could hear as a woman who was one of the best singers in the world. So um, she kind of, she ran off afterwards. We couldn't speak to her. I spoke to John, a drummer, a little bit, and then went on our merry way. Pretty much didn't forget about her, but it really wasn't until I wrote Woman in Chains and uh, it, I knew it was a duet, obviously, that I thought, right, let's get Olita in. And while we're at, we're, we're at it, why don't we make Badman's song a duet as well? Because it never was. Now, interesting fact for you, the record company um, suggested we we get Whitney Houston to sing Woman in Chains duet. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Which oh. could have, ah. as a commercial decision, would have been incredible. I, I, I would have suspect. taken away from you, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, it, we were getting nowhere with the album um, and... So we'd fallen out with Chris like a couple of times. We'd sacked Chris, Chris Hughes once. Chris Hughes had produced Big Chair and the Hurting. We'd sacked him once, got him back in, sacked him again. So just, I need to stop there, though, because he is, yeah. you know... Sounds like the Russell. This is a big... This is a producer who's obviously become a friend, who's, who's, yeah. who's given you these incredible records already and such mm-hmm. success in America. What brings you to the point where you think, actually, now I, I don't need him anymore? Well, I just became, I think, you know... What can I... I People couldn't work with me. I had a vision, and it was gonna. It was my way or, or no way. And I think also what happens with with, with teams. Oh, you thought of calling the album the Wall? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, good point. Nice one. I, th- I think what happens with people is, you know, you, you sometimes you get this chemistry. Uh, I think we had it on on. We didn't have it on the Hurting. That was a very painful album to make, even though it's kind of legendary and was successful. When it came to Big Chair, we dropped Ross Cullum as an engineer. We got in a guy called Dave Bascom, who was very laid back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ian yeah. Stanley, who'd been in the background all the time and not really involved with the hurting, came on board as part of the production team. So we had this real, you know, flexible hierarchy from the artist, um, Kurt and myself, through to Ian, through to Kurt, uh, sorry, through to Chris Hughes and up to the record company. That was a great team. That was a great team that made Big Chair. Ian dropped out, so all of a sudden the team is completely different on Seeds of Love. Chris Hughes on his own couldn't do it. Um, he just couldn't do it. And I, my, my, I was getting better at production. I knew what I wanted. Um, I, once you put me in a studio with you know, people playing live, I know how to edit it. I know how to put it all together. You don't yeah. really need anyone else at that point in time. But but what's but, interesting is is when an album takes that long and you yeah. have so many musicians coming in and you've got so many versions of each track, there's there's two ways of looking at that, both of which are the polar opposite. One, mm-hmm. you're either super confident or you're in great doubt. Uh, I think both. I was super confident when it came to, you know, Seeds of Love and Woman in Chains. I just I just knew. And especially once with Woman in Chains, I mean, I had the fair like programming done pretty much straight away. That's essentially what you're hearing on the record. It didn't no. take very long. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've got Phil Collins playing on it, it's just like, it was just, it, it, it made itself, you know? When you wrote that record, was it yeah. um, that song? Yeah. I, which I think is, is, is incredible. And the, and, Thank and you. The, and the, and the, and the the, the changes within it and the different mm-hmm. textures and dynamics you say you wrote the song it was it was the song just a did it expand itself in recording or did you write it like that it expanded itself uh, atmospherically without question i didn't have a middle eight when i first uh, wrote it that came later but the 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 atmosphere comes from the the interweaving flute parts and and the essentially very basic rhythm you know also put a great strain on and, and you and your partner really didn't it Kirk didn't it it was broken yeah, it, in the end yeah it did I mean you know the way I explain it is you know when I when we first started um, Tiz Fears was very much Kurt and myself and he would almost we'd be together in a room he'd be talking about a piece of music he'd heard the night before at a live show with electric guitars from Bristol 
he'd describe me the, the, the song and I would be able to write a song in that style just from picking his brain. It was a kind of very strange, right. psychic, intuitive relationship. Um, Kurt, I, so I would say that Kurt, Kurt became a pop star long before I did, long time. Um, and mm-hmm. he sort of was enjoying it, whereas I was kind of saw myself as a backroom boy. Um, then when I wrote, so Kurt sang four songs on The Hurting, all the, all the hit singles. When it came to Big Chair, he sings two songs out of eight, and then I start to sing the singles and then shout uh, as well. When it came to Seeds of Love, my voice had developed, uh, and I found it very hard to write for him. You know, it, it's it's mm-hmm. that simple. So therefore, what had you written? But had you been right? Had, had you thought about that consciously no. before when you were writing? No, like, I didn't. This one's for me. This I wasn't thinking about yeah. it consciously, and that's that's a mistake. It's a real mistake mm. because he's. I mean, you know. He's sung our biggest hits, you know. He's 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 done very well for us. But I, yeah, I was on my own artistic, autocratic mission with Seeds of Love, and uh, which ended up in us splitting up. And was that was that like nasty? I presume. I mean, there must have been a whole personal thing to that. Yeah, well, well it was. Um, well, I would say you know, Kurt and I get on very well, except when we tour. And uh, yeah, uh, not the, now, not now, even now. Even now, yeah. Even now, we had. I remember. Uh, I remember when I toured with you. You, I, I, I never saw you guys together. Listen, hey, we've had our problems in our band. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. But, Go on. Uh, I think we bullshitted our way through the conversations when we were there. But I mean, yeah. you did. You just actually thought, well, you know what? There's no point pretending. We'll have separate dressing rooms and be done with it. You know. Yeah, I think that. I mean, you know, it, it got really bad. On it was bad on songs from the big chair. Um, big chair tour and, and it, it got really bad on Seeds of Love because we had a huge band 10 piece band it became a show band um, which a friend of mine mm-hmm. a journalist pointed out in Berlin he said what the hell have you you, you used to guys used to wear black and make synth music and now you're a show band there were two camps in the Seeds of Love tour quite clearly two camps mm-hmm. and um, it got really bad and I just remember I think our very first our very last show was Nebworth, um, uh, the uh, charity festival. And oh, the 1990 yeah, one? Yeah, and I got in the... Yeah, I was on that. Yeah, I was Who were you with, guys? <laughs> Who were you with? Pink, Pink Floyd, Floyd, yeah, of course. Yeah. Pink Floyd. Yes. Never heard of him. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, at the end of that tour, I, 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 I just said, you know, I didn't even say goodbye to him. It was pretty bad. But oh, we'd good. had a lot of... Um, we had a bad thing happen to us during the Seeds of Love tour. Um, our manager, um, who sort of bitten off far more than he could chew in every direction because following Big Chair, he thought he was going to be always a very, very rich man. And um, he put too much money into backing shows and big shows, Genesis shows and stuff like that. And he he went bankrupt. But before he went bankrupt, he uh, took the profits from our tour and put it in his back. Ah, yeah. So no. that became a real bone of contention. And we had a choice. I can yeah, exactly. So it was a choice, really. Our lawyer said to us, well, do you want to sue him or not? And I said, yeah. And Kurt said, no. This is John so, and Paul all over again, right? Wow. Yeah, exactly. With Alan John Klein. Yeah. Uh, Why do you think Kurt said no? <laughs> I just think he's a bit more forgiving than I am. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's yeah. a friend of uh, Paul's. He, un- he understood uh, Paul's uh, predicament. Maybe had a bit more stashed away in the bank. Yeah. You have this childhood that that frustrates you to a certain extent and as, as far as your relationship with your parents is concerned and then you meet this guy mm-hmm. who is the only other believer that you know in a particular yep. kind of therapy to heal you of that you make yep. an album together called the hurting which is all about that you have this great success and, and, and brotherly relationship together yeah. mm-hmm. and then you end up in that relationship with him yeah uh, and you and, and the you know the sad thing is is you're looking back with a lot of that regret upon that album Mm -hmm. where when I play and I played it today before I got to speak to you again to Mm. remind myself it's an amazing piece of work thank you yeah I mean you know we're we're very proud of what we've done um, with that question and but the thing is this you know relationships go on I mean we we spent nine years not talking to each other I did um, Elemental Raul and the Kings of Spain I did a solo album called Tomcat Screaming Outside. And 
I'd had enough of myself, to be honest with you. I was over me. And, uh, you know, I decided mm-hmm. we started talking again and we started making music again. And so we've been together, back together for 19 years or something like that. Uh, yeah. 21 years, actually. So, and also, you know, as, you know, we get older and uh, the more people that you're close to, you grew up with, <coughs> that, that you lose, um, that die, uh, Kurt's become an extremely important person in my life. Um, when mm-hmm. things get really bleak or when I've, whenever I've been very, very ill, he's the kind of person that pops into my head. So it's all these things are, they are redeemable, yeah. you know, and I think we're, we're, in, we're yeah, in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah. And also he's the, he's the only guy, and I know this from my own experiences with my band, mm-hmm. whatever you think of each other, they're the only people out there that have had that same equal experience as you. Completely, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really great. And as I said earlier, we, we spent three months um, at the end of last year in L.A. finishing a record. Um, and we are getting on extremely well. And we are finally acknowledging each other's strengths uh, without complaint. And so, you know, I look forward to the next chapter. That's a really nice and rare thing to hear. You know, there's so many of, of the pairings that break up. Yeah. The one that this is a really nice change to that story. Oh yeah, um, yeah. This isn't together. Roger and David, yeah. or well, you know, this is you, you actually have gone through that process. Johnny and Mozart. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, it takes um, a lot of humility and uh, you know a lot of uh, soul searching, and you've got to realise who you are. I mean, that's kind of was was my journey. Over the past few years, really, uh, you know, so I'm happy. And do you, do you try and approach your recording? Because you say you obviously got on well in recording now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the previous experience would have been, you know, before, before um, you know, when it was just Seeds of Love. Did, was it you actually consciously stepping back and saying this is a, a, a two-way um, conversation? This isn't, this isn't just me dominating the room? Well, again, it's... Uh, we... This last album we just finished, we started that off like a lot of people nowadays, like a lot of older acts, with someone telling you that you can't make this record on your own. You can't actually make a Tears for Fears record. Um, it's not going to be any good. We need you to work with X, Y, and Z. So you go into this speed dating. Of course, you know, I'm, I've, I've got musical, I've got musical Tourette's. So you give me uh put me put me in a situation with a bunch of songwriters or someone with a backing track i'll come up with stuff of course i just i just come up with it whether it's right we don't know until months later and the problem is with that again with that process um kurt was a little bit sidelined so we ended up in 2017 with this um record which um we, did, we, we didn't like. It was uh, numerous it's, attempts. At, uh, was it one of those singles. patchworks where, where you, they, exactly. the record company give you a different, you've got to work with this producer, you've got to work yep. with that producer, and, and every producer's a songwriter. And mm-hmm. Exactly. So Max Martin, you need Max yeah, Martin. Yeah, we, we didn't get to Max. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we, we, we did, did a lot of them. And, you, I mean, you walk into these places and they've either got a new version of everybody wants to rule the world or a new uh, version of head over hills it's just like yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. and is, 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 yeah, did yeah. you scrap that or is that the way you're going on this we kept we kept uh five songs uh five very very good songs re- reworked them wrote uh five new ones you know some of them in in lockdown number one here and um yeah we basically got together and if kurt didn't like it we wouldn't do it it's simple as that yeah. and uh we've mm, we've ended good. up with something yeah, which we're really proud of and actually stands up next to the very best uh, um, Tears for Fears albums. I've just had a random memory come up and I just realised what one of the things that was so great about Songs from the Big Chair and why I played it to death at the time was it was literally one of the absolute first albums I ever owned on CD. Ah, there you go. Yes, yes, yes. My first album on yeah, CD. it was literally one of the absolute first my ones. My first one. So that's what, I had three records, you know, suddenly my record collection was down to three albums. My, my first one was, was the Peter Gabriel record. Really? You know, so, it, so I think you actually go. what wow. you're saying is right, Guy, the, the, the kind of intricate arrangements musically yeah. were what you were after when you were playing CDs. Yeah. Exactly. Look, listen, you can hear him breathing on this one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this is the hum of the amp. <laughs> and can, can I just like the, the latest album that you said you were doing some of it in lockdown? How's how have you worked it as far as uh, guest musicians are concerned on this one? 
Ah, oh, there are no guest musicians on this one. So it's just you think. guys. Yeah, well, we, we, we did um, Everybody Loves a Happy Ending with uh, a guy called Charlton Pettis, who is our guitarist and also a producer and songwriter. And he is a multi-instrumentalist, so he will, he'll play bass, Kurt plays bass, I play bass, sorry guy. Um, hey. Yeah, so, uh, you know. You'll come round one day, I'll be yeah, back. Yeah, no, you're, you're back, amazing. Actually. Get you in, yes. Oh. Um, yeah, so, you know, Charlton's a guitarist, a keyboard player. You know, between, between the three of us, we get most things covered. We actually did a thing, which um, another modern thing, where we would um, send off the backing track or the you know the the the, the track to a drummer in a different yeah. studio in his home studio in LA, he would do the drums and send them back to us. You know, cause yeah, it, it was I think all we're all doing that now at the moment. It's a necessity. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, that sounded that sounds amazing. And it yeah. works just as well. And you can talk to them on oh. FaceTime or whatever you need to talk exactly. to them on. And, and then you haven't got the expense of having to go and bring the drummer in, set them all up in the studio, that wasted time. They've already got their studio with all they've their got, kit set up. They've got their studio. They've got their room. They know exactly what sound they make. And they send it all to you as multi-tracks. And it's just wonderful. In that sense, it's, it's, has it been easy for you? Or uh, has it been creative for you? And Yeah, I would say, I mean... Funnily enough, I mean, we tour, We did two big tours in 2019. We were a bit uh, tired and f um, bored with that stuff. And we weren't going to tour in 2020 anyway, so we were taking a break. Uh, then lockdown started. I was working on stuff. But, but what it, I think what it does is it, it stops you looking outwards. Because we spent about, I don't know, seven years, uh, six or seven years touring on and off. And... You, it kind of satisfies you. It shouldn't, but it does. You go on a tour, you think, that's it, music, done music. Let's get on with something else. But because we, we can't go anywhere, all of a sudden, and, and all the news that was coming out, not just uh, the um, COVID, but all the riots in the States, all the uh, racial um, tensions and stuff like that. You know, this is, this is the stuff that we writers you know, feed off. So, I, I mean, I would, was paying way more attention to the news than I would normally. You know, literally every day, what the hell is going on? And yeah, some of yeah. that would creep Hands into up, the yeah. lyrics. Yeah, I think I'm driven mad by the news at the moment. I, 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 it's the first thing I, I go for when I wake up in the morning, and yeah. I'm not sure it's, it's, it's the best thing. I, <laughs> I used to drive my. It's not good for you. I've tried. I used yeah. to drive my wife we mad. I remember when we sort of first got together, you know, and we would well, we when we were first living together, and uh, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go down, make her a cup of tea, come up and put it by her bedside to wake her up and say, 12 dead in Baghdad, love." Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the best. Way Twelve to wake dead. Up. <laughs> Twelve dead in Baghdad, love. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good way to wait, but so it can disturb us too. But I know. Yeah, what you're no, saying. I agree. No, it's definitely. I mean, I'm addicted to it. And uh... although, frankly, Dominion voting systems suing Rudy Giuliani for 1.2 billion dollars is one of the funniest things I've ever yeah, heard. That, that was That'll that was pretty cool. Today. Yeah. Um, when when like I was that. on, t t we went on tour together uh, in Australia. You yep. were. Uh, I'd pop into your dressing room occasionally to say hi, and you were to nick the sandwiches. They had such better sandwiches. What was going on? Yeah. Um, and and you were writing a novel at that point. I remember. Um, right. What year was that? Uh, 2010, Two. maybe. Okay, I'm doing wondering which novel that was. Okay, yeah, no, I did. I did. Um, I wrote a couple of novels. One which is not worth reading. It's incredibly complicated historical fiction. And the other one, which is quite fun, and that's called Sex, Drugs and Opera. And so, yeah, I put that out, just um, EPUB'd oh, yeah. it. And uh, it all stemmed... I mean, what had happened, I'd been spending... I spent seven years writing this historical fiction thing. Based and when? When was historical it Historical where? Historical it's, where? It's uh, based in Cornwall, in the, in the house of a, you know, a contemporary of Freud, and the house is built on top of an old tin oh. mine and all that kind of stuff, so it's all metaphor and... Um, for the psyche and what's buried beneath the surface. Um, Sounds but, great. You know, yeah, maybe one day. So I, I did that for seven years and, and went through, in a sense, learned how to write because I got uh, a relationship with a, um, an editor called Tom Bromley that lives down in uh, 
um, near Salisbury, and he just beat me up. He literally, intellectually beat me up with every draft I'd send him. He'd come back with this, that, and this, and and it just. I, and then I'd spend another couple of months rewriting it. Um, it was a a very very difficult process. So I kind of dropped that, and then I thought, right, I'm going just for a laugh. I'm going to write something from pres um, in the present tense from first person. Now I'd been. Um, and remember the sh the show Pop Star to Opera, Pop yeah, Star yeah, yeah, to Opera yeah. Star, or something like that. Goldie win it or something. No, I don't know. I, I, um, oh, yeah. I know <laughs> Christopher Mid Biggins. Midjour Mid went on it. I know that. Um, yeah. So I, they asked me to go along to that, uh, to, and I was thinking, what do you want me to go and do this show Pop Star to Opera Star? How did they know I sang opera? You know. Hang on, I, hang on. Whoa, whoa. I think this, this, I'm getting a flashback now. You were an opera singer at one point. No, I did. I did. Um, it's a long story. I, in a, in a very briefly. We've only got four in, hours left. We've got four hours left. Okay, well, I. Um, it's a long story, so I'll tell you all of it. No, I, I, was, um, I was the Pirate King and the Gilbert and Sullivan's, uh, you know, Pirates of Penzance at school. I got oh, yes, headhunted. Yes. Um, I was only about 16, I think, and I got headhunted by the local um, Operatic and Dramatic Society, and so I was invited to join them, and then I got an, immediately got a part, so I was down in the Theatre Royal singing um, Lieutenant Tranish in uh, Bittersweet by Noel Coward. Horrible, horrible music. And so I then got headhunted again. I won't have a bad word said about Noel. I like him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How dare yeah, you? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So I got, head, <laughs> I got headhunted again by this... Um, Opera coach, uh, who was the opera coach for Bath Operatic Society, so um, it became more serious. So I then spent six months um, having opera lessons, and that really did change. Wow. Yeah, it changed the way it, you know my chest grew two inches, and wow. all my warm ups now on tour I do our opera warm ups. Because your range is incredible. I mean, the one thing Thank people... You. That's why you, you always emphasise your cleavage I on mean, stage. Because of your musicianship and your songwriting, I don't think people yeah. focus enough on your voice. And your, you. But your voice is so powerful and so dynamic. Yeah, It's powerful live, definitely. And uh, especially once I, I'm on the road for a month. And uh, I just... Because, I mean, you know, it's a muscle. And once the muscle starts working at its peak, it's just, you know, I'm... I, I just yeah I'm very loud which does help that's part of the the thing live if you can just get get yourself above the sound of the band then you're 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 in a win winning situation your fictitious character was being asked to do that no well I was asked to do it and I found the whole thing so stressful that I began to fictionalize my life so all of a sudden I started writing this um, story about a guy called Solomon Capri who lived down in the West Country and he was a retired 80s pop star. <laughs> and so without going on, on, on about the story, it's, it's a very humorous, um, very short read, holiday read. Talking of which, because uh, Roland, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're a reader. I am, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, are you familiar with the novel Beetlebump? No, uh, it's it's, it's uh, I don't think so. no I can't remember who wrote no. it, but it's basically it's it's John Lennon after his primal scream oh, therapy wow. disappears to a little island off the west coast of Ireland. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh. So it's not a million miles from your yeah. thing, and it's it's a it's a really good That's read. Exactly. Little were you shouting? Were you shouting plagiarism there, guy? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what? So come just talk about now the plans. It's going to we we all can, none of us can make plans really. No. But no. but uh, yeah. have you have you got tours on a tour on sale at no. the moment? No tours. Um, you know, we also got to the point. I think um, Kurt and I have been sort of on this sort of very very nice arc. Um, which which led to the big arena tour in Europe, and plus headlining all the European festivals. That's a great arc, yeah. Um, because we we couldn't get arrested sort of seven years ago, and but we got to the point where okay, we have played these songs now for a long, long time, and we said to each other, right, we're not going to tour again unless we have new material. So that was the condition uh, which we fulfilled. But again, as you you guys know full well, I can't see touring happening this year. Yeah, but we, we, and, and all bands have to write new songs be, because people need to go to the bar at some point during the concert, right? That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Well, we, we raid the B-sides with the sources. Really? 
Yeah. No. Listen, I, listen, no. I can't wait to hear Actually, it. No, we have, we don't know what our bar number is. We don't know what I, our I can't bar wait song is. to hear the album. I I, I absolutely love yeah. the music you make, and then and, and together, I'm sure it's going to be even better. Thank you for coming Absolutely. in. I want to thank welcome. Patrick yeah. Woodruff yes. for, for making this happen. I mean, I, I've obviously, I obviously know you, but uh, I, uh, Patrick I, Woodruff is one of the Bath Mafia and also a very important man in rock, isn't he? He, he designs yes. virtually everybody's light show, Peter Gabriel. Not Peter Gabriel. Not Peter Gabriel, Genesis. But, but Genesis and, yeah. uh, and Dylan and the Rolling Stones and yeah. it goes on and on. And, uh, and he made this little interview happen. He did indeed. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, well done, Patrick. Oh, bless him. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's lovely to see you again after all this yes. time, Roland. Let's not leave Must it so say. long next time. Well, absolutely. I can't wait to unlock and we'll come down to, to the West Country and visit you. And, Beautiful. Uh, and uh, I, I will polish up my table tennis. I don't have a table anymore, so don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I, I am Brilliant. worried about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> worry about it. He is, you know. All right, he guys. Is, he is. Thank you Good so speech, much, mate. mate. Thanks so Take much, care. Love to Kirk. And Best bye bye. All the best. Cheers. Bye bye. Was that all right? Was that all right? That was all right, wasn't it? Now, having spoken to Roland now, I just feel that we have to just be really honest about everything from now on. I know. I know. There was a lot. <laughs> you know, you don't get honest pop stars very often, do you? No, you that know. was brilliant. You, I mean, know, it's, you know, it's, I feel, you know, you're humbled by that sort of stuff, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I felt sort of like I wanted to shake him, go, you know, Seeds of Love is one of the great albums. You know, <laughs> don't be so depressed about it, you know. But I could still feel he might be waking up at four in the morning thinking, why did I do that? <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but uh, such a nice man, you know, and, and a Lovely really man. thoughtful artist, musician. Um, someone, you know, I, we didn't ask him that question, but I get the feeling he, he thinks about music and tries to make something every single day. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an itch he just can't quite scratch, isn't it? So we're loving we're loving doing this. Please uh, uh, keep us going and subscribe because that's what you have to do on podcasts. You have to subscribe, subscribe. and then we'll 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 keep going in your inbox. Exciting stuff coming up as well, and we've got a nice little interview up on uh, Forbes.com. Oh yes, of course. Yes, talking about this podcast and playing together. We are. We've got no. We've got some. As Guy was saying, we've got some great artists coming up. Uh, We're really excited about uh, the next uh, few months. I think it's it's planned out. So we'll see you soon. Yeah, it's goodbye from him and goodbye from her. (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 